Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we went over the book of Jude with Pastor Brian. We looked over verses 5 through 7 and came to a close. This week, we're going to be picking back up in the book of Jude in verses 8 through 13 with Pastor Chris. And with all this said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's service with Pastor Chris. hills that they were sitting on when the disciples asked the question, what happens in the future? What will the end times be like? What happens the day after tomorrow? Lord, we want to know. And Jesus tells his disciples there on those hills, also known as the Mount of Olives, there in the distance where they can see the temple, where the presence of God the Father would reside. And Jesus told them many things. One thing he did say to them was, in the last times, there will be false teachers. There will be false prophets. And many will go away following their lead. Jesus said, false teachers, they're coming. Paul, there on the shores in Ephesus, the elders of the church around him, weeping and crying that for three years he was now departing from them. And his message to them, there are wolves in sheep's clothing and they will devour the flock of God. Be aware of that. Paul's message, false teachers are coming. Peter would sit down and he would write the church. The words Kim just read and he would pen those words, beware of false teachers, they're coming. James would say, false teachers are coming. Jesus, James, John, Peter, Paul, they're coming. Jude writes the second to last book of the Bible, and he says, church, they're here. They've arrived, and they're not going anywhere. They've made their abode in the house of God to destroy God's house. Everywhere it says they're coming. The the book of Acts was the story of the Acts of the Apostles. The book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates. And so Jude is writing this letter to Christians, and he's saying this is the purpose that you would wake up to what is happening in the world. You would wake up to what's happening in the church. You would not be blinded by the God of this world. He's saying, church, wake up. Christian, get your eyes open and see what's happening around you. Jude wants us as the church to be able to go to a lineup of people, of teachers, and say, number one, number four, and number eight as an apostate. That's his goal. That's his purpose. He wants you to be able to identify false teachers, heretics, apostates within the church. So he writes this book. And he writes this book, and in our text this morning, he's going to reveal the apostate's character, the apostate's company, and the apostate's comparisons. He's going to tell us what they're like, who they follow, 
or are influenced by, if they were, if this was social media today, uh, Jude would say, these are who the apostates follow and are influenced by. And then lastly, this is what they're like. This is who they are compared to. So turn in or turn on your Bibles to Jude. And we're going to take verses 8 through 13. Uh, Jude chapter 8 through 13. And he speaks on character. He speaks on companionship. And then he speaks on comparison. Jude, or I'm sorry, verse 8. Yet in the same way these men which is a, a phrase that Jude uses often. And it's like the word likewise or the phrase um, likewise or in result or continuing on. And it really is just joining his thoughts together. And he says, these men or likewise. And the these men he's referring to are the ones he has just spoken of. It are these, it's these men that he's going to continue on defining who creep into the church unnoticed. And we spoke that word creep means to smuggle across a foreign border. That's what the Greek word means. It means to be in foreign land unannounced, illegally. To be in the church without being invited by God is really the idea. These men are in the church unnoticed. Un, they creep in. And he goes on and says, these same men are pre-programmed for damnation in in verse 4. These men, the Greek word is pre-programmed for God's judgment. These same men use God's grace for licentiousness. To put in today's vernacular, they take God's grace and they say, isn't it amazing And then they go off living however they want to live, banking on the same grace they deny. I remember when I was 17, and this will tell you how how worldly and how far I've come. Remember I was 17, and there was an older gentleman. He was probably in his 30s, and we're sitting in his dining room. And our conversation was, how are we going to rob this stereo shop? How can we go in there and actually get it? And so he's telling me, hey, this is the plan. We can do it this way. And I remember not being a Christian, just outright saying, don't you fear God? I remember saying that because I thought to myself, this is getting kind of crazy. We're literally going to go rob a, a, a stereo, a business. I said, don't you fear God? And his question is, why? All we have to do is just say we're sorry when we do it. And I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I sat there in the living room and I thought to myself, That doesn't sound right. But that's the message of the false teachers who have crept into the church. God's grace is amazing. Go live however you want to live. Then these false teachers, these same men, Jude says, are ones who act like they know God Act like they've been affected by God. Act like God owns them, and yet they are not even in his presence. They do not know him. And Jude gives three examples. They are like unbelieving Israel. Israel saw the miracles of God, the plagues. They literally walked on dry ground in the Red Sea. They were fed manna. 
They ate quail. They had fresh water. They were led by a pillar of fire and by a cloud. They saw the holy angels from God himself at Mount Sinai deliver the law to Moses. They were there and they witnessed it all. And yet it says that they died in the wilderness because of unbelief. They were close in proximity to God, but they never knew him. Jude says that's the false teacher, close to proximity. They're in the church, but they don't know the church. They're just like the fallen angels. They're before the, the throne of God, holy, holy, holy. They see God. They saw God's glory. They, they witnessed his creative abilities, and yet they defected. And they left God's presence because of sin, because of revolt and rebellion, just like the false teacher. And then he says, these false teachers, verse 7, are like those at Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in the presence of holy angels, and yet their flesh is so defiled. They go and are even willing to defile the glory of God in their own human depravity. And he says, like these men, likewise, or continuing on, look at what their character is like. He says in verse 8, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. The word dreaming is the word the, the New Testament uses for visions. He says, these teachers are false prophets. They're dreamers. They say they have utterances. They say they speak on behalf of God. And you see it all the time. You see it on YouTube. You see it all over the place at churches everywhere. They'll be a person that says, thus says the Lord, and they'll speak on behalf of God. Though he might even tell you the future. This is who's going to win the election, or this is what's going to happen, or God showed me in a vision this would take place. And they speak, and they speak, and they speak on behalf of God. Listen to where Jude says their inspiration comes from. It's right there at verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not know. And the things, and we'll explain that, refers to God's things, spiritual things, angelic things, heavenly things. They don't understand it, so they mock it. They reject it. So where does their inspiration for prophecy come from? The things which they know by in instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Where does a false prophet's inspiration for prophecy come from? Impulse, intuition flesh. We call it gut feeling. People that know how to read the room. People that know how to read a culture. People who know how to read a group and, and realize what these people are really longing for. Call it hope. Call it change. Fill in whatever blank you want. They know how to read the room and they speak falsely on behalf of God because of gut intuition, because of instinct, because of fleshly impulse. There was a time, if you remember your Old Testaments, where there was the nation of Israel, and then it split, and you had the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom. What's the southern kingdom's name? You guys remember that? Judah. 
And so there was a southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, the northern kingdom had already been taken away. They've already defected, and they were already consumed. So you had the, the little kingdom of, is, of uh, Judah, which is the area that we would know today of Jerusalem, that southern part. And there, the culture, the people living at that time, they didn't know who to believe. There was fake news everywhere. You had one prophet named Hananiah who was crying out to the people on behalf of God saying, don't worry about Babylon. Don't worry about the uh, foreign power. Don't worry about their might and their growing influence on our nation, their friends. This Hananiah went around to the people saying, peace, peace, God brings peace. Babylon will fall in two years. And so the king and the council and all the people are saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, he's delivering us, we're going to have peace. Yet on the other side, there was another guy spewing some information named Jeremiah the prophet. And there Jeremiah the prophet said, there is no peace. Babylon isn't going to fall in two years. In fact, they're going to come and consume the nation. And so the people didn't know who to believe. So they started following the one they wanted to hear. And so you had this group of people begin to follow Hananiah. And we pick up the story in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 10. And I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 28, starting at verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go, maybe I should do God's voice, right? Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the necks of all the nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the, Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have lied or you have made this people trust in a lie. What was Hananiah's fault? He was not sent from God. He did not speak on behalf of God. And he led the people to believe a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to remove, remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. When someone prophesies on behalf of God and it doesn't come to pass, they are a false prophet because God is the source of all truth. 
How can you speak on behalf of the source of all truth and it turn out to be a lie? That is either God is a liar or like the Bible says, God is true and let every man be the liar. They are dreamers who speak falsely. And this is their nature. Number one, they defile the flesh. The word defile means to stain a clean garment. It means to pollute something. It means to make, to make dirty of, and then the flesh is sarks, which is your human body, your physical. These false teachers pollute their physical body, and it's used in reference to sexual immorality. False teachers, this is the best description I could come up with. They have filthy, dirty bodies, but when they come to church, they put on clean clothes. That's the false teacher. Sooner or later, the stench is going to come through their clean clothes. Sooner or later, the real them is going to reveal themselves. They defile their own flesh. Pornography, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, the whole nine. For you mathematicians out there, what verse comes directly before verse 8? All right, you guys are wise. Verse 7. Let me read to you verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. The word strange flesh means a bestiality or, or same sex, homosexuality, are exhibited as an example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these men by dreaming defile the flesh. What is he tying verse 7 and verse 8 to? He's saying false teachers are morally, sexually corrupt. Just like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they've gone after strange flesh, whether that's a priest with a young boy, whether that's an occultist with seven or eight women, whether that's the Mormon church in polygamy, they've gone after strange flesh, they've denied their, defiled their flesh, and they are proud of it. This is the crazy thing. There's no repentance in it. And so they are ones who go out and actually pollute their flesh. And we see it all over. Philippians chapter 3 speaks, and it says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Who are the dogs? Of the evil workers of the false circumcision or the false brothers. Beware of the false brothers, of the dogs. Why? Verse 18. For many of them, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These are people who defile their own flesh, and they can't even control themselves. The second characteristic is they reject authority. I want to spend some time on this one, because this one directly impacts our culture. Directly impacts our culture. False teachers reject authority. 
The word authority is the, comes from the root word from kurios, which means Lord. They reject lordship. They reject to be ruled over. They reject to submit. And it primarily is referring to the lordship of Christ. In verse 4, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who long beforehand marked out for this very condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers reject the lordship of Christ. False teachers say no to Jesus. And this is vital because if you reject the lordship of Christ, you reject all of God's ordinances. You ultimately reject all of God's institutions. And what you have left is an individual who is, by definition, anti-Christ. Just by very definition. When you reject the lordship of Christ, you reject all of God's institutions. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, then God's man or God's institutions he gave to man on this earth to govern so that everything can be done with decency and in order. So that man in civilization, in society, in the home, in culture can live and operate and be amongst one another with decency and in order. So the way God did that was establish institutions on earth. What is the very first institution God established on earth? Marriage. Came way before any government. Came way before the church. Came way before uh, even the family. Marriage is the cornerstone of God's institution of being able to restrain evil and keep a culture in line. When you reject the lordship of Christ, you will ultimately reject the institution of marriage because God has ordained it, and that is a form or place where authority is given. This is God's definition of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, now this bone, now this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In Hebrew, what does the word Adam mean? Or the name Adam? It means male, man. What is the word Eve? Female, woman. Marriage is one male and one female in the, in the bond of unity, established and given authority by God. Now, within the marriage home, within the, the family unit, God has instituted the family as an institution to restrain evil. So you have marriage. When you reject Jesus as Lord, you will ultimately reject the institution of marriage. So you redefine it. 
You say it's Adam and Eve or Adam and Steve or all three of them or whatever you want or you don't even have to get married at all because God's institution has been defiled. You reject Christ, you will reject all of God's institutions. The institution of family to restrain evil in a community. God established that. A father, a mother, and children. Within that family structure that God has instituted, he has given authority. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives submitted to your husbands as unto the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, you can go back and listen to it. We covered it two months ago. Wives submit unto your husbands. You're submitting because you love Jesus. You're serving Jesus by submitting to the authority figure in the household which God has given as in the institute of family. The, fa- the husband submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the children submit to both father and to mother, honoring their parents and being blessed in doing so. That's the institution of the family by which God has given to the earth to restrain evil. When you reject the lordship of Christ, you will reject all other forms of authority God has instituted. So you go and you redefine the family. We have a cute phrase today called feminism. It's on the back of women's empowerment. Feminism is causing women to be uh, stripped away of power. It's causing uh, 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 inequality within relationships. Being empowered as a woman is not opening your legs and sleeping around with whomever you want to sleep around with just because you can. That's not empowerment. That's losing yourself. That is making yourself weaker than whom God has called you to be. When you defile and reject Jesus as Lord, you will reject the family structure. So you redefine marriage. You redefine the family. God has instituted the church as a way in which uh, evil can be restrained on the earth. God has planted the church to make disciples and to do what? Teach them to obey all things. You make disciples to teach them Jesus is Lord so that they fall in line. But when people creep in unaware and they begin to propagate that Jesus is not Lord, then even the church loses the purpose for why it exists. And so you have a church in a culture who opens the doors, who makes the church as worldly as it can so it can invite people in, and we give messages so we don't offend anyone or hurt anybody's feelings, and and we call that doing the Lord's work. And all it's done is make the church and the world inseparable, which is exactly the opposite of what the church was intended to be. When you reject Christ, you will reject church's authority, you will reject the, the church's sole authority, and you will reject the spirit in which protects the church. And then God, lastly, has given the institution of government to restrain evil. And when you reject Christ, you will reject the government and those above you. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When you reject Christ, you will reject policing. You will defund the police. You will get rid of the police. You will reject law. You will reject the Constitution. You will reject the mayors. You will reject governors on both sides of the aisle. If you lean right, you'll reject everybody over there. If you lean left, you'll reject everybody over there. It's incredible what has happened. But when you reject God, you will ultimately reject all authority. So marriage is redefined. The home is redefined. The church has lost all of its power. It's no longer shining bright. It's no longer the salt of the earth because false teachers have brought in worldly doctrines. And then when you reject God, you ultimately will revolt against the government. You have a society and a culture that is absolutely and totally living by their own flesh and impulse as opposed to living the way God has instructed. Now, I don't know if you know of a culture like that, but I'm just saying This is what happens when false teachers take over the church. It starts in the church, it spreads to the community, it spreads to the county, and it takes over the country. That's how it happens. It happens here. When you lose, the culture loses this, this spot with this book, and people willing to apply it, you've lost society. And that's why Jude says, Christian, wake up up because these people are real they're in our churches and their agenda is to destroy wake up that's their character they are polluted in the flesh they deny authority primarily the lordship of christ and then it says here in verse 8 they revile and i promise i'll be much faster as we keep going you're like dude we're gonna be here like for three years Thirdly, they revile angelic majesties. The word revile is this Greek word. Maybe you know the English word. The Greek word is blasphemeo. We get the English word blasphemy. And then the angelic beings is the word doxa. We get our English word doxology. And it just means glory. <clears throat> False teachers, they blaspheme God's glory is what he's saying. And primarily in this realm of heavenly things, spiritual things, angelic beings. See, angels and demons are very interesting. And Jude says false teachers don't respect either. And this is his point. Angels had a, an amazing ministry and have an amazing ministry for God. Angels were, were all over the scripture, assisting, helping, mediating, uh, um, being a messenger on behalf of God. The angels were there at the giving of the law of Sinai. The angels are, are told in Daniel of warring over prayer, uh, is Satan and his demons versus God and his angels. The angels were there announcing Christ. The angels were there at the, the resurrection and at the ascension of heaven or of Jesus to heaven. The angels had this incredible ministry in which they help and support God to further the kingdom and the gospel. And false teachers 
they blaspheme those angelic beings. And primarily, they do it because their lives are polluted. You see, angels worship God, reflect his glory, and praise the Lord. When you deny God's glory, you deny God, and you don't worship God, you are ultimately defiling and blaspheming the holy angels. The second thing Jude points out is this. He, they also blaspheme demons. And really, it's this idea of um, thinking themselves more powerful or presuming on God. Have you ever had these false teachers? They stand up on a stage and they say, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Get behind me. You know, I put you at my feet and I stomp you with the scorpions. And they say all this stuff. And listen to what Jude says in verse 9. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, the archangel, one of the most powerful created beings, wouldn't even presume to fight Satan on his own. And yet these false teachers with no power Say, I rebuke you, Jesus. I mean, Satan and Jesus. They might as well say that, right? I rebuke you, Satan. Get under my feet. And all this ridiculousness. They aren't saved. They don't have the spirit. They don't have any power. And yet they presume that they have authority and power over Satan. That's why he says in verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. False teachers will ridicule, uh, belittle the spiritual world because they don't understand it. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things, they are destroyed. So that's their character. Quickly, let's look at their companionship. Verse 11, who do they follow after? What are comparisons by which we can say, I've seen that person before and I know what to look for? Verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. There are three Old Testament people that Jude refers them to. And it's interesting that, that religious Jews call these three, you know, the unholy trinity, if you will. Unbelieving, you know, Jews to Christianity call these three men the, the unholy trinity. And the first one is Cain. And you remember the story? Why, why, why did uh, Cain kill his brother? Because he was able, right? You guys know that story, right? Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve, they knew each other, and out comes baby Cain. Cain has a brother, his name's Abel, and they grow up together, and then God required a sacrifice. Abel sacrificed what God required. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. They must have learned that from the garden when the, his, their parents were naked and ashamed, and God killed the animal to clo- clothe them with animal skins. So God must have taught them a story. God must have instructed them in the way of how to how he wants to be worshipped. Well, Abel worshipped and came before God in the right manner. Cain did not. 
And Cain saw that union between Abel and God Almighty, and he was angry. He was hateful. He was envious. He despised it. And so Cain did the unthinkable. Cain killed his only brother, or at that time, his only brother. As far as we know, it's the, the first human death. The, the blood of his brother was crying out to God. What was Cain's error? Really, it was disobedience. This was his error. He came to worship God on his own basis, in his own way, determined by his own impulse, rather than the way God commanded, God instills, God tells people to come to him. He worshiped God his own way, sacrificed God to God his own way, and completely threw out and rejected the way God had told him to serve. It's pure disobedience. That's the way of Cain. That's the way of the false teacher. They come to God in their own way. They serve God their own way, not in the way he commands them to be. Secondly is Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Balaam was a prophet. Only problem was Balaam sold his prophecies to the highest bidder. And so here there was a really rich king from the place called Moab. Anybody know what country Moab is today? Southern Jordan is, is uh, Old Testament Moab. So there was a really powerful king there at Petra area, southern Jordan. And he hears of this guy, this prophet named Balaam, and he says, hey, I want to hire you because I don't like the Israelites and I want to take it over. So he goes, all right, pay me good and, and I'll make sure I prophesied against the people. And so the, the king of Moab paid Balaam and Balaam began to prophesy cursings over the children of Israel. Only problem was it didn't work. So Balaam was like, well, I got paid heavy. And I got to come through, so I have a master plan. So he gets all the, rounds up all the women of Moab, and he has them go to Israel and sleep with all the men and just defile them and bring them down into immorality. That's Balaam. Jude says of the false teacher, there will be like Balaam. And you see it everywhere. They prophesy on behalf of God for money. Because the God of this world is their own belly. And they drag people down in immorality with them. I said two weeks ago in Africa, this is a huge thing within this charismatic movement. You have these, these gentlemen that go from town to town claiming to be prophets. And all they're doing is taking money and taking the women. And they move on. The way of Balaam, exactly like Jude said would happen. You're seeing it all over. We, literally, we just had a pastor just this last week fall off the face of the map. And so all these things, Jude says, watch out for. They're like Cain immoral. They're like Balaam. They sell their service for God, and they bring people down in immorality. And they will perish in the rebellion of Korah. Do you remember who Korah is? I know it's a tough one. Korah was... Moses's first cousin. Now, what tribe did Moses come from? What tribe did Aaron come from? Yeah, there you go. He was a Levite. 
He was from the Levitical priesthood, which means Moses' dude was a Levite as well. So what do Levites do? Well, they become priests. Unfortunately, Moses and Aaron probably saw something in Korah's character and said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't be a priest here. And so what did Korah do? He started a rebellion. Numbers chapter 16, verse 3 says this, and all of us in the congregation are holy, end quote. What does he mean by that? What he means is Moses, Aaron, you guys don't have a direct link to God. We are all holy in this conversation and this congregation. We don't need you as leaders. We can all lead together. That was Korah's rebellion. What happened to Korah and his rebellion? God swallowed him into the earth. False teachers lead people into rebellion against God. That's why that passage we just read earlier, it talks about how they rebel against God. Prophet Hananiah, he was a false teacher and he rebelled against God. So their companions are Cain, Balaam, and Korah, which represent disobedience, immorality, and a rejection and revolt against God and his church. Then verse 12 and 13, and we'll we'll be quick with this, the comparisons. What does God compare these false teachers to? And he gives us five uh, natural phenomenon that he compares false teachers to. Verse 12, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They are like hidden reefs. What do you think that means, hidden reefs? What would you guys assume? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. It's hidden rocks under the water. It's hidden reef. If you're a a fisherman in the first century and you don't have sonar, there's no radar, and you're just sailing along thinking it's clear sailing, there's no problems, everything is all good, clear open water, and then smack. Next thing you know, your entire ship is at the bottom of the sea. False teachers creep in. It looks like they're smooth sailing. It looks like everything is okay. And next thing you know, the church is shipwrecked. The congregation's shipwrecked. They find themselves at the bottom of depravity. And this is a specific way. He says this, in your love feasts, when they feast with you, without fear, caring for themselves. Do you know what another name for love feasts are in in today's vernacular? Potlucks. That's really what it was. The, the church would, would all bring food from their home and they would gather together at the church and it'd be a time where there'd be sharing and caring. They would break bread together. They would oftentimes take communion with each other. It was a time in which primarily the poor of the church and the poor of the, the community would come and be fed and they would be loved on and the needs would be met. But this is what ended up happening. And uh, you can go, I was going to read 1 Corinthians 11. You can go there on your own time. But there, the love feasts are defined. And what ended up happening was the pastors or false teachers, they would go and eat up all the food first. And then they would even get drunk. They're at a church potluck. They would just start drinking and eating and eating and eating and eating until 
the homeless and the poor and the hungry of the church had nothing. And that's why Jude says here, he says, they only care for themselves. They do not care for you. Any pastor who will not preach the gospel just wants to take from you. That's the truth. If they deny this book, they will deny you. They want to steal everything you have for their own personal gain. They are like reeves hidden in the water. The second thing is they are like clouds without water. So in an agrarian culture, rain is everything. In agrarian, I just mean agriculture. If you're a farmer, then you need rain because crops mean food, Crops mean money, and crops mean you have an, an item to barter so that you can have other things that other people have that your family is going to need over the winter or over the summer or whatever. When you don't have rain, you don't have crops, which means you don't have food, which means you don't have a business, which means you don't have anything to barter, it's very difficult. False teachers are like clouds with no rain. They promise the world, and they deliver nothing. They bring zero value. Proverbs 25.14 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a person who boasts of his gifts falsely. They look like they'll give you the world, and they'll take it from you. False teachers. Third thing he says is they are like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. So when you go to Boston and you go to the East Coast, what do the trees do in the fall? <clears throat> Change color. Why? Because they're dying. All the leaves turn brown and then the leaves fall down. That's Jude's point. False teachers are like a tree in fall. False teachers are like a tree whose leaves are dying and they're doubly dead because they never in that year even produced fruit. Not only is the structure dead or dying in decay, but it's absolutely fruitless. They're doubly dead. And that is simple enough to understand. Verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. They're relentless over and over and over again. And all it does is uh, bring shame to the top. And then lastly, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And Jude is referring to a shooting star. How beautiful is a shooting star? It's amazing, right? You, you see a whip across the night sky and you're like, God, you're amazing. False teachers are like shooting stars. They're here for a second and they're gone. They make a, a, a real bright flash while they're here, you know, they're, they're radiating and then they're gone. What, what, what is a shooting star? Yeah, it's a meteorite. It's a, it's a shooting, a shooting star can also be a, a star that is dying. It's on its way out. It's that last fluster. It's that last sh shot of light before it dies. It's like a, 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 la a light bulb that just before it, it burns out permanently, it gives one last hurrah, where it's a, a, br a bright flash of light, and then it pops. And that's Jude's point. These, they're here, and then they're gone. They're bright, and then they're dark. They are a quickly 
dying breed. They're here and they're gone. I mean, if you look at the gurus in the 90s, many people don't even remember them anymore. But while they were here, they were important. In the 2000s and 2010s and so on, we have false teachers everywhere. And Jude says, look at their character. They have defiled flesh. They reject authority. They reject divine and holy things. Look at their companions. They are like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And then look at what they're compared to. They will shipwreck you, take from you. They are here for a moment and then God gone and they are a dying breed. But they come and they pollute. And they pollute a church, then they pollute a culture. And Jude says, Christian, wake up to what's going on around you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, God, for this time in which we can get in your word. Um. God, I love the passages as we just go through scripture of the the passages of grace and redemption and love. These are the passages, God, that are easy and beautiful to preach on. But Lord, you have given us the full counsel of truth so that we can know right from wrong and we can be aware of the termites that have come into the church and are destroying it from the inside out. God, you have shown us what to be aware of, what to observe. We know, God, that we'll be able to spot these men and women out, these false prophets out, because of how they live, because of what their doctrine is, and because what you have likened them to. And so, Father, in a world of fake news and bad news, I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the good news. And I thank you, God, that you have given us your son. I thank you, God, that through the father's selecting and the son's sacrifice and the spirit's sealing that you have prepared us for a salvation, Lord. That he who has begun a good work is faithful to complete it even to the end. And I thank you, God, that you will keep your beloved. I thank you, God, for Jude's words in verse 24, when he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you blameless in his presence. God, we thank you for that. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the shed blood. We thank you for the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and we thank you for our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And God, you have commanded us in your word to remember him at the Lord's table. And so God, as a church, may we spend the next few minutes having a real reality check. Lord, there are so many people who have come into the church who say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And yet they redefine marriage, they reject the home, they reject the church, and they revolt against the government. And they say, but I'm a follower of Jesus. False. 
That's the spirit of Antichrist. And God, in the church, it is filled with people who do not really know you. And my heart, Brian's heart, our church's heart has been so heavy over this. Lord, you've called Christians to your table and only Christians to your table. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but Jesus is our Lord and Master. And so if you're a Christian or if you're a person here today and you don't know if you're right with God, you don't know if you're truly saved, call upon the name of the Lord, even right now. But if you reject or you refuse, I would just say, as the church takes communion, that you would abstain. That you would abstain. And that there would be a heart of repentance. God, may we take this time just a few minutes, Lord, to get right with you, repent of sin, recall relationships that have been broken, think of doctrine that we have wrongfully labeled as truth so that we can be right with you. Father, forgive us. God, may we have an autobiography like Josiah that did all that the Lord had commanded him just as his father David, and he didn't turn to the left or to the right. That's what you've called your people to do, Lord. Paul wrote these words. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So for all you who are partaking in communion, would you take and eat? In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you take and drink? Father, here we are in the world, but not of the world, a beacon of light in a sea of, of darkness. I pray, God, that we would have the courage to stand up before man, that we would take your word at face value when you say, do not be intimidated by them. Do not fear them. You are blessed. God, as Christians in this time, when our word and our message is counterculture, Father, may you give us the unction to believe those words. Do not fear man, for what can man do to me? God, may we know the truth that we are to fear God, who can kill both body and soul. And so, Father, we are here to represent you in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.